Welcome to worship. If we haven't met, I'm Courtney, one of the pastors here. And what a great day it is to gather together with God's people. It's still a little dark in here, and I'd love to see your faces so I know if you're hearing me. In fact, after I preach, I learned a lesson from the first pastor I worked with, the first lead pastor. He said, I actually don't want people to tell me good sermon. I'm not trying to preach a good sermon. I want to make sure they heard me. So he, said, he would say to us, if, you, if God had a word for you today, you just say, I heard you. God was at work through you. I heard you. So I like that. Anybody else like that? Yeah. God is here. Amen? God has gone ahead of us. If you've been with us the last many weeks, you know that uh, Ben and Jeff have been preaching this amazing series Some hard things we've been talking about, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Come on, the devil, right? And um, they've taken us through 37 different passages to talk about the ways in which the world, the flesh, and the devil are at work against us. And the first Sunday, if you were here, Jeff kept saying to us, I'm going to give you a lot of hard things, a lot of hard news. And when you just can't take any more, I need someone to say, where's the good news? Do you have some good news? Anybody remember that? Yeah, I needed the good news. Guess what? Today's the last day in the series and all I've got is good news. (laughs) Wasn't that nice of them to let me do this? I think so. It seems clear that the enemy of our souls is intent and we don't have to be afraid. That's the good news. God loves us, my brothers and sisters. We have been using this phrase from John, our interpretation of John Mark Comer's phrase. It is this, the devil's strategy is this, to give us deceitful ideas that play to our disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. That's the framework we've used. Jeff brought us this this phrase from Ignatius of Loyola, and it, it was super helpful for me. Ignatius of Loyola said this, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. The devil is the enemy of my soul. God is the lover of my soul. I trust that. Do you trust that today? I need to grow in my trust of God as the lover of my soul, my trust that God wants good things for me and good things for this world. In the book of James, chapter four, verses seven and eight, we read this. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, when I first read that in the past couple of weeks in preparation, of course I've read it lots of other times in my lifetime. I'm like, what does that mean God draws near to me. And I have to say, my impression was sort of like this namby-pamby God going, oh, hi, Courtney. I'm drawing near to you. Like, we don't use, when do you say that to your children? I'll draw near to you tomorrow night for dinner. We don't, we don't talk like that. So I looked at a different translation from the message version. Listen to this. So let God work his will in you. Yell a loud no to the devil and watch him make himself scarce. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Okay, I can work with that God who will be there in no time. Not who slowly is drawing near to me, but who is ever present. If I will turn and look at God's face, place my trust in God, 
we are invited to place our trust in God, draw near to God, and embrace God's ever-present nearness. Place and embrace. You know, God promises God's presence to us throughout the entire testimony of the Old and the New Testaments in the Bible. If God promises this, what gets in our way? What keeps me from trusting God's presence? Well, lots of things, honestly. But I would say this, primarily knowing and acknowledging my own need. Simply put, we forget that we need God. We think in our daily lives, I I can do it myself. The world distracts us. Again, Old and New Testament. The psalmist in Psalm 42 talks about his need for God. Just listen, if you're willing, close your eyes and listen to the psalmist's words. I need you, Lord. As the deer pants for streams of water, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Do you see that? We're called to community. And then the psalmist asks his own soul a question. Why? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And he begins to lecture himself. Put your hope in God. I will yet praise God, my Savior, my God. That's remembering and acknowledging our need. Theologian Miroslav Volf says this. He says, knowing about Jesus versus relying on Jesus is the difference between the knowledge I hold about God and God holding me. I have good news for you today. God draws near. God runs to us. So, What about us? How do we draw near to God, as the author of James tells us? How do we draw near to God? Well, first, with our thoughts. We get to pay attention. We get to acknowledge them and shape them. Ben reminded us by preaching part of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, here's the bit about the world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Acknowledge your need. Then you'll be able to test and approve God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. One more time, the message version for me is helpful because I'm a practical girl, and it's practical contemporary language. So listen and see if this resonates with you, too. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you, you take your everyday, ordinary life, you're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing 
what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to the culture that you want to fit into it without even thinking, without remembering, I would add, whose you are. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. You'll readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Anybody else want to be well-formed by God? Amen? Place your life before God as an offering. Embrace what God does for you. Place and embrace. Be held by God and embrace God in return. Well, we had to start all the way back at the beginning, which is to know our habits. I have to know, first of all, what am I doing? What's leading me down the path of the world? So what, S-O, and so what, S-O-W. Look at this quote. Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an action and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap character. Sow character and you reap a destiny. Who said that? I don't know. It was attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson, Warren Rearsby, and Warren J. Wolf. so all their names are up there. Whoever said it, they were wise. God is inviting us to displace our fear with trust. Remember, all the way back to Ignatius of Loyola, do you trust God? What fears do you have? Would you like to invite God to displace those with trusting God? is with you moment by moment. In Philippians 4, 8, and 9, we're told what to think on. I love that God is this generous. We don't even have to figure it out. Here's what it says. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I can't actually read that without hearing Steve Green in my head. Some of you had kids that were young, like my kids in the early and mid-90s, and Steve Green is a Christian singer who sang like contemporary Christian music, but he was kind enough to put together an album called Hide Em In Your Heart. Anybody else listen to that with their kids? Yeah. And so we listened to it nonstop, and I won't invite you to enjoy or slash endure Steve Green singing this, but it is how I have this passage memorized in my head because we listen to it over and over in the car. Put the first things of God in your heart and your mind first. Practice. Hear a rephrase of this same passage. Oh, summing it up all, friends. Summing it all up. I'd say... You'll do best and live best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious. The best, not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you learned from me and what you heard and you saw and you realized. Do that, 
And God who makes everything work together will work you into his most excellent harmonies. Hmm. The musicians in the room know the difference between dissonance, two notes right next to each other that are not being very good friends, to harmonies, where each one in its place brings about a beautiful sound together. We've heard it time and time again in these passages today. Put it into practice, put it into practice. I used to love the phrase, practice makes permanent, and that is true. We're not gonna talk about neuroplasticity today, but that is true. So my phrase for 2023, and you can quiz me later in the year if I'm really using it, is uh, practice makes progress. Why? Because there's a long ways to go between practicing and permanence. <laughs> and I mostly live somewhere in the middle with little tiny increments of progress. And I want to trust God with those little tiny baby steps of progress because they all actually matter. I need to place my trust in God as I work toward that progress and embrace God's love for me all the way through. Pastor and therapist Adam Young says this, we all have hidden persuaders. I love this idea because it's true that we, each of us has ideas and experiences and feelings from the already written chapters of our lives. And those things, those experiences, they persuade us for good, and sometimes not so good. My question for you is, how are those persuaders working for you today? Are they great? Are they God-honoring? Or are you going, yeah, not so much? Well, we get to learn new ways of being. Um, I'm currently taking a class um, with a couple of theologians, and I'm, I'm learning about the Enneagram and family systems and how those integrate in our Christian faith. If you want to talk to me about it later, you'll be sorry you asked because I just love what I'm learning. But what happens when you learn something is you realize, oh, this might be helpful for other people too. So I'm going to teach my homework if that's okay with you. So here we go. The woman who is uh, the Enneagram expert, her, actually her nickname is the godmother of Enneagram. Um, she's from West Texas, and she does talk like this, and I really love it. Her name is Suzanne Stabile. She offers this acronym, and it's been so helpful for me, and it is simply the word SNAP. S stands for stop, N for notice, A for ask, and P for pivot. We're called and invited by God throughout the scriptures to stop and notice God, and then ask, am I trusting God? Am I embracing what God has for me in this moment? And if you're not sure, ask again. And then to pivot, to act in a new way. In the book of Luke, Jesus tells a story that really demonstrates these steps. It's a story I imagine most of you know quite well. It's the story of the prodigal. If you look in your Bible, it says the prodigal son. Perhaps as you've heard the story, your view of God or the father in this story who's symbolizing God, our Father, has been influenced by traditional classical paintings, maybe like this one. Maybe your image of the Father looks like this. Notice the son is contrite. They're clearly already on the grounds of the Father's house. That surely is one way to imagine the scene. However, today, I'm gonna invite you to envision it anew and a little differently. The story 
of the prodigal from Luke. My summary. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and change that slide for me. Please, thanks. There was a man who had two sons. Sorry, we'll go back to the blank one. There was a man who had two sons. Jesus is teaching about this man. Jesus is talking to Pharisees. He's talking to tax collectors. He's talking to sinners. And the Pharisees do not like it so much. Jesus says, there's a man who had two sons, and the younger one said, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Essentially, the child is saying, I want your things. I don't want relationship with you. Ouch. But that's really what he's saying. So the father gives him his share, and off he goes. And he rapidly spends his inheritance. I think we could easily infer, as we read the story, that deceitful ideas, he was convinced that he needed the things of the world, more than the relationship with the Father. Deceitful ideas played into his disordered desires to fulfill earthly and physical appetites. And those were normalized by the sinful society he lived in, even without the internet. He thought, if I take the money and run, my life will be better. Well, what happens next? He leaves home, he spends all the money, he lives large, and then you know what? He stops. (laughs) He stops. And he notices something. He notices that he's feeling empty. And he notices, you know what? This is unsatisfying. My dad's animals eat better than I'm eating right now. And he asks the question, I wonder if I go back. Will my father take me? The scripture actually literally says this phrase. He came to his senses. So what does he do? He changes his mind about living out in the world. He pivots. And he goes to his father's house The story tells us, he says, I'll go to my father. I'll say, I'm sorry, I've sinned. Please take me back. I'll beg him to take me back. He stops, he notices, he asks, he pivots. Here's, I think, where the story gets the most interesting. It's this. Jesus says, while the child is still far off, the father runs to him with compassion and mercy in his heart while the child is still far off. So not while the child is down on the ground, already contrite, the father becomes compassionate. No, long before that, while he's still far off, but the father sees the child has turned around and is coming toward him, and he runs to him. The father runs. You know, in Middle Eastern culture, a man, a male does not run, not an adult male. And we see an image like this. This is more what the prodigal father looks like. You know, we think the word prodigal actually means the son who has left and comes back. We think of the person who goes away as being the prodigal. That's how we use it in the English language. Not actually the definition of the word, my friends. The definition of the word is someone who is reckless and extravagant. Who is more extravagant with their love than God? Than this father who bears his ankles in a sign of shameful humiliation, ignores that to run to his child while the child is still far off, not when the child's repented, but just because the child has turned his face to his dad. God runs. In the book of Matthew, chapter three, verse two, John the Baptist says, repent, Now, the Greek word for this is super interesting. Mataneo. What's that sound like? 
metanoia. Repent means to change your mind. Change first what you're thinking. It denotes a change of orientation and actually also a change of outlook. Do I need to change my outlook and my view of God? Do you? Do you need today this God who runs toward you? Who says, my child has turned their face to me. Let's go back to James 4. Listen again. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no to the devil and watch him make himself scarce. Say a quiet yes to God. He'll be there. You know why he'll be there in no time? Because he's running toward you. God is running toward you. We have lots of opportunities in our lives to practice yelling a loud no. We practice using our holy imagination. A friend of mine who um, suffers from panic attacks was explaining to me what her therapist told her. And she said, my, my therapist said, you know, between the very beginnings of a panic attack and when it's full blown, there's actually quite a bit of space in there. And I think there would be some opportunity for you to impact the panic attacks. Maybe not always, but what if I gave you a tool? So my friend said, yeah, yeah, please give me the tool. So her therapist taught her when she notices something's coming up in her, right? There's a physical manifestation of the anxiety and fear she's experiencing. Her therapist said, the first thing I want you to do is stop and be still for just a moment. Be still. And notice, notice the fear. What are you you afraid of? Where's that coming from? And then instead of letting the fear be in charge of you, ask the question, what do I believe can happen in this moment? And then ask another question and stay curious until you get to the place where you can say, I believe God is with me. I believe I can trust that God will be with me no matter what happens. And she has a particular image of God sitting with her on the beach that she uses. She says, and then I'm able to pivot. So even while there may, that may not always work, sometimes it does. And I'm reminded that God is with me even in those desperate moments of fear. Friends, I think that's yelling no at the devil. I think that is God drawing near and running toward her. Asking God for the courage to resist and say yes to God. I read part of Psalm 42 for you earlier. The whole image of the psalmist there is this humility to say, I need you, Lord. Say a quiet yes to God. And I have a favorite song that's based on passage Psalm 42. And this week I asked Anna and Michael to go above and beyond all their normal rehearsal. And uh, I asked if they would bring this song for you as an opportunity for us to listen and notice, to stop and notice and ask and pivot. And notice God who is with us. I need you Lord. There's a quiet place 
That gives me peace when I'm alone with you There's a hiding place Your spirit's always there when I'm confused Only you can purify All this world won't ever satisfy my heart It cries As the deer pants For the water So my soul Needs you, Lord When thirsty God You're the living water And my soul Needs you, Lord I need you, Yeah, amen. Knowing our need is the beginning of change. I hope today you're able to say, I need you, Lord. This world is not my home, and only you can nourish me. Only you, God, can slake my thirst. So I pray that as we move through this week, we stop, we notice God's presence. We ask the Holy Spirit for courage, then we pivot, and in pivoting, we yell no to the devil. Not today, Satan. We invite God with a quiet yes or a loud yes. Some of my 
Most significant prayers have been help and thanks. And then almost always followed by wow. God loves you. Our prodigal God runs to you in your need, my friends. God, he'll be there in no time at all. Amen?